Hello, Christ Central. My name is Dan. I'm the Fullerton Campus Pastor. It's my privilege to bring you the Word of God today. Today, we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, would your living word bring about spiritual life, refreshment, and repentance? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up our hearts and turn our eyes to Christ today. I pray this in his name. Amen. In verse 1, James asked the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Today, we're going to answer that question. The first thing we're going to look at is the reason for fighting. James actually answers his own question in verse 1. He says, this is the reason for fighting. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And we want to unpack what James is saying here. The first thing we learn from James's response is that fighting starts within. There's a Christian counselor named Paul Tripp, and he gives, I think, a very helpful illustration. He says, imagine there's a bottle, you unscrew the cap, and you shake it, and water spills out. And he asks, why did water come out of the bottle? Most people would say, well, it's because you unscrewed the cap. It's because you shook the bottle. But Paul Tripp says, no, water came out of the bottle because water was in the bottle. The cap, the shaking, those are the circumstances and situations. But what Paul Tripp is saying, what James is saying as well, is that our circumstances and situations, although stressful and strenuous at times, they are not responsible for the content of that bottle. If there were milk in that bottle, then milk would spill out of that bottle. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15 that what comes out of our mouths is what is first in our hearts. Adultery, sexual immorality, slander, and theft. And so especially when our circumstances are difficult, we're very tempted to say, it's them, or it's that. But James is saying, no, it's you. It's you. What is inside of us? James is saying the issue is what's inside. The second thing we learn from James's response is that there is a war of wants inside us all. James says our passions 
are at war within us. This word passions, it's, a, it's another way of saying strong desires. Throughout history, there have been many wars, and these wars have different names. There's a civil war. There's the War of 1812. And if we were to give this war that's raging and waging on within us a name, I'd call it the War of Wants. We all want things. We all want things to be a certain way. We all want people to be a certain way. You want your spouse to be this way. You want your boss to be that way. You want drivers on the road to be this way. You want your children to behave that way. And unlike many wars in history, this war of wants isn't history. It's current events because our passions are at war within us every day. And it is important to note, yes, there are good passions and there are good desires as well. For example, it's good to, de- to desire your spouse not to be flirtatious with others. It's good to desire for drivers not to be drunk. It's good to want the coronavirus to be contained and for those who are sick to receive treatment. Those are all good desires. James, however, in this passage, he is not speaking about good desires. He's speaking about our passions gone wrong. He's speaking about sinful desires. In verse 2, the words he uses for these sinful desires is desire and covet. He says, you desire and do not have, you covet and cannot obtain. Those words sound very similar, but I think it's worth exploring the differences. This word desire, you're saying, my life should be this way. We all have a picture of the way things should be. We all have a picture of the way traffic should be, the way the president should be, the way our boba should be. Why do newlyweds fight? Because they each have a picture of the way things are supposed to be. They're each so used to things being a certain way. And when they were single, they had sovereign control over the thermostat, sovereign control over the finances and their level of cleanliness. But now when you get married, that's suddenly interrupted. Your picture of the way things are supposed to be and your expectations are suddenly unmet. It's like they're trying to work on a 2,000-piece puzzle together And they don't realize that the reason why it's so frustrating is because there are actually two puzzles in the pile. They each are bringing in a picture of the way they believe things are supposed to be. Marriage conflict, along with any conflict, it boils down to my way versus your way. Passions, our desires, are at war within us. And so you see that On a deeper level, fighting, it's about rights. We fight because we believe there has been a violation of our rights or our standards. You could even say that we have within us our own little Congress that passes laws according to the way things should be. We get angry when somebody or something infringes on our Constitution. And not only are we Congress, we are also the Supreme Court, and we sentence all violators of our law. This is something we are all born with. We all have a strong sense of the way things should be. We all have a strong sense of right and wrong, and that's because we are all created in the image of a moral God. 
but because we are fallen, our sense of right and wrong is selfish, sinful, and misguided. Just look at children. If you have children, I think you realize and you learn very early on that they are lawgivers from birth. What do I mean by that? They have a precise picture, although they may not be able to articulate it, of the way things are supposed to be, the way they're supposed to be dressed, when they sleep, what and when they eat, and they'll go to war with you parents because it's their way versus your way. This is where James drops a very important truth in verse 12. He says this, There is only one lawgiver and judge. We act like the lawgiver and judge when we expect others and demand that they live up to our standards. And when they fall short, we unleash punishment. We fight them. We're angry in the form of lashing out, storming out threats and curses. But James says, don't act like the lawgiver. There's only one true lawgiver, and that is God. I think it's helpful if we look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Catechism asks, what is sin? And the answer is, sin is any transgression of the law of God. But in our sinfulness, we become the lawgiver and we redefine what the law is and what sin is. We believe now that sin is any transgression of the law of me. Secondly, James uses the word covet. If desire says, my life should be this way, covetousness says, my life should be that way. In 1 Kings chapter 21, there is a king called Ahab, and he wanted a guy's vineyard. He even, he even offered to pay for it. But the owner of that vineyard said no. How did Ahab respond? It says that he returned to his house vexed and sullen. And it says that he laid on his bed and he wouldn't eat any food. He couldn't eat anything because his covetousness or his envy was eating him up. We all know this feeling. And in this day and age, I think we experience how envy eats us up, especially online with social media. I just recently learned this past week what's called the hate-like. And it says that over half of 18 to 34-year-olds admit to tapping like on social media when in fact they're actually jealous and envious inside. It's called the hate-like. And we've all done that before. You're on social media and you're seeing... Their parents bought them a car, a brand new car, and I don't even have my driver's license yet. Hate like. They're eating out at another Michelin star restaurant. Do they ever cook at home? Hate like. They're traveling abroad again to another exotic location, and I'm here at home. Hate like. We've all done that before, and we're vexed, and we're sullen just like King Ahab. Gore Vidal, he was an American writer, he says this, every time a friend succeeds at something, something inside me dies. 
Envy kills us inside. It eats us up inside. The Heidelberg Catechism actually says that envy, which is this evil desire, is the root of why we fight and argue and murder one another. Proverbs chapter 14 says that envy makes our bones rot. And so when we're rotting away on the inside, we're going to be rotten towards others on the outside. How do we know then if our desires are rotten? How do we know if our desires are sinful? There are two ways. The first, the object of our desire is sinful. That's the obvious one. You just want something that is sinful. You want to rob that bank. That is always sinful. But what takes some more time to determine is the second. That the object of our desire may be good, but your desire for it is sinful. It's more subtle. In Greek mythology, King Midas, he was able to turn anything he touched into gold. That's where we get the phrase, the Midas touch from. And believe it or not, every person has a similar ability. Not to turn things into gold, but to turn things into God's. In our sinfulness, the desires of our hearts turn good things into God-like things. There are good things such as relationships, marriage, having children, and even success. However, in our sinfulness, we will turn those good things into God-like things, and we end up worshiping relationships and marriage and children We will enshrine our appearance and our possession, success, and status. We will elevate to a savior-like status those things and bow down to them. Why? Because we believe it'll fill a void in our lives, validate our worth, and give us a sense of meaning and purpose. John Calvin insightfully said that our hearts are idle factories. This is why James says in verse 4, You adulterous people. James knows that at the root of our covetousness and sinful desire is adultery. He calls it adultery because adultery is a spiritual word for idolatry. How then do we know? How do we know if our desires for something good goes bad? For example, desire for relaxation and peace and comfort. Those are perfectly good things. But then when your kids start acting out, or your spouse unexpectedly asks for help cleaning because guests are coming over and yes, they forgot to tell you about it. You flip out, you yell, you grumble, you mutter obscenities under your breath. Using that example, how do we know if our desires for something good goes bad? Ask yourselves these questions. What does it look like when I don't get what I want? More pointedly, what do I look like when I don't get what I want. In verse 2, James says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. This leads us to our second big point. The danger of sinful desires and covetousness is murder. You wanted peace and quiet, and you didn't get it. And so you murder your wife, you murder your children, you murder your husband, Were the Christians that James is writing to physically murdering one another? No. So why does James use the word murder 
Well, we need to look at how Scripture defines murder. If we look at the Heidelberg Catechism, in question 105, it asks, What is the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not murder. And the Heidelberg Catechism says that neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desire of revenge. According to scripture, murder takes on many forms. So these Christians were murdering one another, and we murder one another as well in our thoughts, words, gestures, and deeds. It could be the cold shoulder. It could be that scathing phone call. It could be a belligerent text or email, that sarcastic comment on social media. It could be name-calling. You're such a fill-in-the-blank. You could be patronizing or passive-aggressive. And I do think that a favorite murder weapon of many is passive aggression. Passive aggression, what does it do? It, it leaves the person confused and causes them to overthink, stress out, and lose sleep. Maybe torture is a better word than murder for passive aggression. And when you're passive-aggressive, you can hurt someone and easily claim innocence. No one who's passive-aggressive ever admits that they're passive-aggressive. They always say, oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it that way. I think you took it the wrong way. And now you're the crazy one. Because of this war of wants within us, we murder those around us. As believers, we're called to be loving and life-giving with our words and deeds. So what's the solution? I could just say, let's all be less angry. But that's not the solution. That's actually secular advice. There's nothing gospel or Christian about just saying, let's all just be less angry. No, we have to switch out and swap out the contents of that bottle we need to get to the heart. And so what is the remedy? This is the third point. The remedy for sinful desires and covetousness is humility and jealousy. In verse 10, James says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humility is one of the remedies for our sinful desires. How come? The first reason is that the humble know what they deserve. Our sinful desires say, I deserve this. The humble know what they truly deserve. Our sinful passions say, I deserve wealth. I deserve comfort. I deserve happiness and success. Those who are truly humble know and say, no, I deserve wrath. I deserve condemnation. I deserve hell. The gospel does not paint a pretty picture of our condition apart from Christ. We are dead in our sin. We are children of wrath. We are deserving of everlasting punishment in hell. The truly humble know that they had no chance of heaven, had no chance of peace with God. The humble know that it is only because Jesus left his heavenly place took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead. The humble know that it is only because of Jesus that they are reconciled with God, adopted, justified, forgiven, and glorified. 
The humble know this, what J.I. Packer says, that between us sinners and the thunder clouds of God's divine wrath stands the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the humble know the way things are supposed to truly be. And they know what they received instead. And because they understand that, that they were treated the way that they did not deserve to be treated, the humble treat those around them differently. The humble also know their true status. James is writing to Christians among whom many were poor and many were of low social status, which explains why they would envy others and why they would covet other people's standing and possessions. And those desires can easily become an idol. And I would say Christians today, we still idolize status, relational status, career status, educational status, and social status. I read an article recently about our culture's obsession with status and how we buy into status symbols in attempt to level up. And these status symbols, there are things like water bottles, luggage, strollers, gym memberships, sneakers, traveling and experience. An unusual status symbol that surprised me is seeming busy. That on social media, you just always seem really busy. Business Insider, there was an article describing how millennial parents use their kids as status symbols. They say, in the age of social media, it is easier than ever to show off your children to others. And if they're wearing designer clothes and living in a swanky nursery, it helps flaunt your wealth and your status. The humble know their true status. They don't envy and they don't covet because they know what they possess. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The humble boast in their exaltation because they know when Christ returns, they will be glorified and that in heaven they have all the spiritual riches. And so the things of this world, for those who are truly humble, do not add to their worth or their significance. The truly humble have no reason to be envious, and therefore they're not angry within. There's no war when they don't get what they want. The humble also repent, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This word double-minded, it means a divided heart. James is saying that many Christians that he's writing to, including us, we have a divided heart. That yes, we worship God, but we also worship the things of this world. If we want to deal with our anger, we have to deal actually with our idols within. And the humble repent of their idolatry. Can you be humble enough to admit your idols? To be able to say, God, I've made an idol out of social media. God, I've made an idol with being popular or my appearance or my career, my status. I've made an idol of my marriage or my children. Can you be humble enough to repent and be honest and say, God, when I don't get what I want, I say so many mean things. I'm cruel. I'm spiteful. I'm bitter. 
The humble see how ugly their sins really are and how much hurt they've caused other people. They see their sins piling up sky high. And I know that's not a pleasant experience to think about how idolatrous we really are. I think many of us would actually be embarrassed to admit the things that we envy and where we actually find our sense of worth. But here's the beautiful part in verse 6. He gives more grace. When your sins are piling sky high and you're so aware of them, God's grace goes higher. God gives more grace. And he gives grace to the humble. The second and final remedy to our evil desires and covetousness is God's jealousy. The remedy to our envy is jealousy. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's God's jealousy that cures our envy. Jealousy, God's jealousy in verse 5, James says, God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. In other words, knowing how much God loves us, knowing how much God cherishes you and longs for you, that is the antidote for our envy. But when we are unaware of how much God loves us, that's when we are most prone to be envious. In psychology today, I learned that the word envy is derived from the Latin word invidia, which means non-sight. Hence, envy, therefore, is a result of blindness, non-sight. And so the fundamental problem with envy is that we are blinded to the bigger picture. In Psalm chapter 73, the psalmist writes about how envious he was and how much it was tripping up his own faith. He says that my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because he was envious of others and he saw their prosperity. He admits that he was blind. He says that he was brutish and ignorant. In other words, he suffered from nvidia, non-sight. But his eyes were opened when he entered the sanctuary of God. What is the sanctuary? It's the holy place where God dwells. I don't know if you know this, but the, the, the tabernacle and temple, they were designed to look like paradise, the perfect place where God dwells with us. It's that place where we know how close we are to God and how much God treasures us. And it was only when the psalmist entered the sanctuary of God and spent time with God, it was only when he saw the bigger picture of paradise, that's when his envy dissolved. Psalm 73, 25, 26. This is his conclusion. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We won't envy when God is our everything and our portion. And so I encourage you, spend time in the sanctuary of God. We need to behold God every day. We do that by being in the word regularly. Pastor Harold just recently preached on why we need to read the Bible We need to gather weekly in worship, sing praises, confess our sin, hear the word. We need to regularly partake of the Lord's Supper. 
There in the Lord's Supper, we see the height and depth and breadth of God's love as we hold the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I think it's actually impossible to grumble. I think it's impossible to be envious when we are holding that cup and that bread, when we see everything that God has given us in Christ Jesus. And so the goal here isn't to delete our desires. No, the goal is to redeem our desires, to know what we already have in Christ, and then we can have better desires, godly desires. Then we can begin seeking first the kingdom of God rather than our own kingdom. I want to close reading an excerpt, something Robert Murray McShane wrote. He says this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let's pray. Father God, would you do a spiritual work in our hearts? Not just so we become less angry, but so that we become more like Christ. Help us feel your love settled on us. Fill our hearts with the sweetness and excellency of Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen.